I want to thank you for listening today. If you have not subscribed to our podcast, please do so and feel free to rate and review us as well. If you live nearby and do not have a church home, we would love for you to come visit us here at Fellowship Bible Church in Jacksonville, Texas. You can connect with us by calling or texting CONNECT to 903-586-6520. If you would like to support the ministry here at Fellowship Bible Church, we would greatly appreciate that as well. To give one time or on a regular basis, you can text GIVE to 903 903- 586-6520. If you live a ways away, we hope you would find a good Bible-believing and preaching church in your area to join and serve in and support. Thanks again for joining us. We hope you have a great week. Well, to begin this morning, I want to brighten your day with a question. What brings about societal collapse? How does an entire civilization fall apart? I'm pretty sure uh, not very many of you this morning woke up with that on your mind. You're getting ready for for Sunday service. I wonder what causes societal collapse. You were thinking that, talking about that over coffee this morning. It's not a real fun topic to talk about on a Sunday morning or or ever, right? But I want to begin this morning with this subject. How does an entire culture fall apart? There has been a lot written on this. Some argue natural causes. Others argue for economic reasons. Some foreign invasions. That's, that's been a cause historically. Well, the Word of God gives us moral reasons for societal collapse. If you have your Bibles Turn to Judges chapter 21. We are finishing our study through the book of Judges today. For the past four sermons in Judges, we have looked at life after Samson, and we have learned that it is not a pretty picture. Society does not get better for for, for God's people, the situation doesn't get better for them after the death of Samson, but much, much worse. While it appears as if God's people had hit rock bottom at the end of Samson's story in Judges chapter 16, we learn in Judges 17 through 21 that rock bottom has a basement. And this morning we're going to take our last Stroll on the basement floor of Rock Bottom. Some of you are like, thank you. But we're going to take one last stroll and we're going to examine how God's people Israel got to where they, where they are in this story and how they just completely fall apart. We have learned over the past five weeks how, how societal collapse occurs gradually and morally by studying the evil actions of individuals and families and religious leaders and groups of people and an entire nation. The the way we witness culture fall apart is that an individual has a downfall and then a family has a downfall. The religious community then has a downfall and then a group of people have a downfall and then society just completely 
falls apart. We, we have talked about this uh, uh, before, why we, why we so stress home discipleship is for this reason. We believe here that, that society is only as healthy as its churches. And the church is only as healthy as the, the families who, who inhabit that church. And families are only as healthy as the individuals that inhabit those households. Husband and wife, mother and father. You could, you could put it in this way. As goes the home, so goes the church. So goes society, so goes the world. We, we have witnessed the, the, this Jewish society in the period of the judges slowly deteriorate in this way. So let's take a moment to review before we look at, at the last chapter. First notice, point number one, the downfall of the individual. We first looked at Micah's story. Micah and his family in Judges 17. Micah lived after Samson and he was faced with the choice of whether to make matters better or worse for his people in this broken world and he made decisions that made matters much, much worse. We said that we're often faced with decisions in this broken world of whether or not we're going to decide to make things better in this broken world or, or worse. And we see people make decisions all the time in our world today that makes matters much, much worse. That's, that's Micah's story. He is going to make decisions that hurts his, his family and religious community and society as a whole. We, we have said that sin is never isolated. That is the great lie that the enemy tells us that when I sin, my sin is only my sin and it doesn't affect anybody else. No, when you sin, you sin in the context of family, in the context of church, in the context of community. We never sin on an island somewhere, and we learn that from Micah's story. Micah is going to sin, and he is going to make matters worse for everybody around him, for his family, for his church, for his community. First, we learn that Micah is a thief. We learn that detail about him. He steals from his mother of all people, and out of fear of being cursed by her, she didn't know he took from her, but she, she spoke a curse on whoever did, and he was like, I don't want to be cursed by, by my mother, so he said, hey mom, I took the silver, it's, it's with me, I took it. And his mother then blesses him for this, this empty confession and fails to deal with the sin in her son's life. Micah was a taker and not a giver, and his mother was soft on sin. This is a dysfunctional family, a broken family. We not only witness the downfall of this individual, Micah, but also the downfall of the family. That's point number two. While Micah's heart is, is not right with the Lord, we also learn, and he learned disobedience, obviously, from his own sinful heart, and, and because he's broken and fallen, but he learned disobedience from his mother as well. We learned that she had a wrong view of God. 
she views God as an idol to be manipulated. We're told she took some of the money that was returned to her and she made a carved image and a metal image. There is idol worship going on in this household. Micah did not honor his, his mother as he should. He was a thief. His mother was an idolater. They're breaking God's commands left and right. It's a mess. Micah's mother was an idolater, so was he. We're, we're told that she made idols for worship. Micah had a shrine built in his home as well. And we learn here, parents, grandparents, you have influence in the lives of your children and grandchildren. There's the application there. The question is how you're influencing them. Not that you're influencing them. You already are doing that but how you're influencing them, whether good or, or evil. Micah was influenced by his evil mother for evil, okay? We're told he made one of his sons, a non-Levite, a priest. The author of Judges gives the reason for this messed up situation and this godless activity in Judges 17.6. In those days... There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We'll see this verse again in just a moment. But, but that's what they're doing at this time. People did not have a king. They did not have godly leadership. Instead, they lived as if they were the king and they did what seemed right to them. They just made up their own rules for worshiping God. They tried to worship the right God in the wrong way. We see that happen a lot in our society today. So we have looked at the downfall of the individual, the downfall of the family, and next we see the downfall of the religious community. That's the next point. We looked at this at the end of September. In Judges 17, we learn of a Levite in the wrong place who visits the wrong family. And he, he gets involved in the re wrong religious activity and he continues to lead a family down the wrong path spiritually. That normally happens in that way. The tribe of Levi was the tribe of priests and this Levite shows up at the door of Micah's house and his family, and he is invited in to serve as their household priest. By the way, there's not supposed to be one of those. Not supposed to be a household priest. But Micah has money, and this Levite is an opportunist. So he, he pays this preacher to do what he wants him to do. Micah pitches this idea about this Levite being his household priest, and he sweetens the deal by offering him money to do it. And this Levite goes along with the plan. Both of these individuals, they lack convictions. They are worldly opportunists. When religious leaders compromise what they know to be true in God's word, for the sake of status and opportunity and influence and earthly riches, the church and society suffers as a result. And that's what's happening here. We, we have discussed how important it is that, that we, as leaders in the church, we prioritize faithfulness. We must not compromise what we know to be true biblically. We must not give up. We must not give in. We must remain faithful no matter what. So we see the downfall of the individual, the downfall of the family, the downfall of the religious community, and then we see the downfall of an entire group of people. 
in chapter 18, we are introduced to the people of Dan who, like Micah, have an idolatrous view of God. They end up at the house of Micah. Somehow they all end up at Micah's house. They, nobody should go over there, okay? But they end up at Micah's house as well. They have an idolatrous view of God. They seek counsel from his wicked household priest. Of course they do, because when you're on the wrong path, you seek counsel from those on the wrong path to continue to lead you down the wrong path. That happens all the time. They, they said to the Levite in Judges 18.5, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. Well, context tells us that the journey that the Danites were on was not a good one. They're in the wrong place, and they're doing the wrong thing. The story of the Danites is a very, very sad one. They had a promising beginning. They were called by God to defeat their enemies and, and serve God in the land He promised them. Instead, they disobeyed God. They doubted God. They were defeated by their enemies, and they became like the Canaanites in an unpromised land serving false gods. They're doing what's right in their own eyes. They're going the way of, of everybody else in the book of Judges. But this godless priest didn't know it. Of course he wouldn't. Of course he wouldn't know. And you know what he tells them? Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. That's what he tells them. Bad counsel. But what do you expect from a household priest, right? He tells them, go in peace. Continue living as you're living. Continue to do what's right in your own eyes. Terrible counsel. We have many counselors giving this kind of advice today. The truth was their journey was not favored by God. It was opposed to Him and would end in judgment. So the, the Danites failed to see the error of their ways and they added insult to injury by taking this this false prophet and a godless priest with them. The Levites leave Micah, this, this Levite, they, he leaves Micah and his family to go with the Danites. They offer him a sweeter deal. They said, why don't you come with us? You have more influence, you have more money. And the Levite priest says, of course I will. The Levite is an opportunist. He makes decisions in ministry based upon the pay and the perks and he, he goes with the Danites to settle in an unpromised land with imitation gods. You know that when the tribes are listed in Revelation 7, there's one missing. You know what tribe is missing? Take a wild guess. The Danites. Their story is a sad one. We have... The downfall of the individual, the downfall of the family, the downfall of the religious community, the downfall of a group of people, and finally, we have the downfall of society as a whole. We see this in Judges 19 through 21. We have studied these chapters over the past several weeks. In Judges 19, we're told of a Levite who had a concubine. You're not supposed to have one of those either. And they are having problems. Surprise, surprise. When you violate God's design for marriage, you open yourself up to a world of 
problems. She left him. She went to her father's house. They're having problems. And the Levite eventually goes after her. They stay at her father's house for many days. They eventually leave together, but they get off late. So when traveling, they have to find a safe place to stay for the night. And they choose the place of Gebeah because their brothers, the Benjaminites, are there. Surely that is a safe place for them to lodge for the night. When they get there, they have a difficult time finding anybody who will take them in for the night. They're finally taken in by someone who is a stranger to that land, a foreigner, a sojourner from Ephraim. He takes them into his house, and while at his house, we're told some worthless fellows, some worthless men from Gebeah, they show up, they surround the house with plans of sexually assaulting this Levite who is staying at his home. The, the host resists these men's advances, but compromises in the most wicked of ways. He offers up his daughter and the, the Levite's lesser wife, his concubine, to these wicked men. The Levite ends up sending his concubine out. They sexually abuse her all night until morning, killing the woman. Awful. The residents of the people of Gebeah, the Benjaminites, are doing this. It's not the Sodomites from Sodom and Gomorrah. It's, it's the Benjaminites doing this. We see how wicked God's people have become. When the, the Levite demands justice, God's people Israel agree. But the wicked Benjaminites, they side with these worthless fellows. They prioritize relationships over righteousness. Instead of giving these men up and over to the proper authorities for the wicked thing they've done, they fight against their brothers. Again, we see, like the Danites... How far the Benjaminites have strayed. Well, God will punish them for this poor leadership decision to fight against his people and to defend these wicked men. We're told in Judges chapter 20, verse 35, and the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. So instead of a handful of worthless men being put to death justly, for the rape and murder of this woman from Judah, thousands die. And while this seems like a Benjaminite problem, we will learn in our final chapter of Judges that all of the Israelites have been corrupted. They've all been corrupted. In Judges 20, 48, we learn that while the the leaders of the rest of the tribes of Israel, they rightly set themselves against the tribe of Benjamin for wrongly siding with these murdering rapists. They fail to lead in a way that's merciful and compassionate. Instead, they lead in a way that's heartless and, and, and malicious. We're told in Judges 20, 48, And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men, and beasts, all that they found, and all the towns that they found they set on fire. So instead of just executing these hooligans of Gebeah and punishing the men who fought against them, the armies of Israel killed Benjaminite men, Benjaminite women, 
Benjaminite children. They killed their animals. They destroyed their towns. Not just the offending city. They almost completely decimated all of the Benjaminites everywhere. They went beyond justice to genocide. They lacked compassion and instead they acted in a way that was merciless and unfeeling, cold-blooded and heartless. They killed all but 600 men in this tribe. And then, on top of that, they make a foolish vow, which brings us to Judges 21. How's that for an introduction? we got to get going. Let's pick up reading in verse 1 of Judges 21. I'm going to read down to verse 7. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, No one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. That's a foolish vow. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? For the next day, the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, Which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly of the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left? Since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives. Now we learn at the end of this chapter in verse 25 of Judges 21. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. When leaders lead in this foolish way, doing what's right in their own eyes, leading in their own strength, they make rash, uncalculated, and foolish decisions, putting themselves and all of those they lead in a big bind. That is what the leaders of Israel are doing here. Instead of punishing the Benjaminites responsible, they take matters far beyond the extreme. They killed almost every Benjaminite except for 600 men. And then they also make some foolish promises. They, they promised that no wives would be given from their women to the Benjaminite men as wives. That was a stupid vow that they will later regret. The Benjaminites were their brothers. They now faced extinction because there were less than, than a thousand left and all of them were men. They're left with no wives to marry. The leaders of Israel are sick about the situation and they respond in a typical way many often do when they're dealing with the consequences of their own foolish decisions. They cry out to God and, and, and play, place the blame on Him. We often do that. They cry out to God and say, Oh Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel? That today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel. Why is this happening, Lord? Well, let's answer that question for them, okay? Why has this happened? 
Who is to blame? The answer is clear here. They're to blame. It's because of their failures in leadership. Instead of taking the blame and suffering the consequences for their poor leadership decisions, they try and and place the blame on another. They question God on the matter. Last week we discussed leadership lessons that we learned from the poor leadership at this time. Here's another one. Bad leaders blame others for their mistakes. Timothy Keller says this. Look at this quote. It was a rash vow. This created a huge problem for them. They had put all the Benjaminite women to death, could not give the 600 starving men their own daughters to marry, and so had effectively exterminated a whole tribe. It is incredible that they should weep bitterly about this to God, asking why has this happened, as though it is somehow God's fault. It was their rash oath, followed by their massacre of their brothers and sisters in Benjamin, which caused this, but it is easier for them to put God in the wrong than to engage in self-reflection. Folks, this happens all the time. I've witnessed it. I've seen it happen again and again. People mad at God. Others are to blame. The church is to blame for their problems. Last time I looked, the church wasn't unfaithful to your spouse. The church did not cause the relationship problems in your family. God's people are not to blame for your sin. The problem is not outside of us, it's inside of us. It's in our hearts. Good leaders realize when they're in the wrong and they own up to it. So few do this. So few do this. Think about how many relationships would be restored and ministries saved if people would simply admit they're wrong and seek forgiveness and give forgiveness when forgiveness is sought. Think about that. Listen, if there is no self-reflection, there will be no sin discovery. And if there is no sin discovery, there will be no earnest repentance. And if there is no earnest repentance, there will be no true forgiveness. And if there is no true forgiveness, there will be no restoration in the relationship. That is vital for you to understand. And so few people see it. I've seen it so many times over the years. Made this plea to people to admit their wrongs and they refuse The leaders in Israel have made a rash, uncalculated, and foolish decision. And then, instead of taking the blame, they try and right this wrong in their own strength. Notice that while they they question the Lord as to why their Benjamite brothers are, are, are suffering, it's their fault, right? That they do not consult the Lord on what they should do. They don't seek God's help. Instead of, of suffering the punishment, Of this foolish vow, they try and correct their mistake. They punish others instead. Bad leaders do this. They make others pay for their mistakes. Bad leaders make others pay for their own 
foolishness. The, the leaders of Israel do that here, and what results is a decision that is just as evil as what the, the worthless men of Gebeah did to the Levites' concubine from Judah. Look at it with me. Look at verse 8. And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah? What, what, what group's not under this vow? And behold, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were, were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword. Also the women and the little ones, this is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that has lain with the male you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him, and they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin, who were at the rock of Rimmon, and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time, and they gave them the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh-Gilead. So notice what happens here. They, they have made a vow that they will not give their women to the men of Benjamin. So they go to a people who did, who did not come to Mizpah. A people earlier in the text we learned they had already devoted to destruction because they refused to come. That's another rash decision they make. They go to a people who are not under this vow that they, and that they had already vowed to put to death, and they attacked them, they killed their men, they killed their women, they killed their children, they take their women who had not been with the man, and they give them to the men of Benjamin. They kidnap the virgin women from Jabesh Gilead and give them to the Benjaminites. So here you have murder, you have kidnapping, you have human trafficking, you have forced marriage, and you have sexual abuse. It's awful. It's awful. Instead of taking the heat for, for being cold and heartless in their dealing with the Benjaminites, instead of receiving the consequences on themselves for their own foolish vow, which is probably the only right decision here after they've made all these mistakes, these wicked leaders look for loopholes and they commit wicked acts of depravity and violence on a national scale. Barry Webb said this in his commentary on Judges. He says, they themselves were the real cause of the problem they were trying to solve. They were making others pay for their own wrongdoing. Again, bad leaders do this. Bad leaders do this. And get this, it doesn't completely solve their problem. They are... 200 women short. They only, they only found 400 young virgins in Jabesh Gilead. They're going to have, to have to do something else that is equally wicked, and we learn about it in verses 14 through 21. Look at it with me. But the women of Jabesh Gilead were not enough for them. They're 200 shy. 
And the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who are left since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters. They could have and just took the heat on themselves, right? But they're not going to do that. For the people of Israel had sworn, Cursed. Be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. Verse 19. So they said, Behold, there is a yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Libona. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. Okay. So they go, first they go to a people who are not under this vow and they kill them and they, they steal their young women for the men of Benjamin. And this doesn't completely take care of their problem so they find another loophole in their rash and foolish decision. They try and right their own wrongs and they do so in the most wicked of ways. They say to themselves, we cannot give our women to the, to the men of Benjamin because we've made a vow that said we wouldn't and we'd be cursed if we did so. But we said nothing about the people of Benjamin going and stealing their own women. So let's do that one. To avoid being cursed, by breaking their own foolish vow, instead they decide to work with the men of Benjamin to kidnap women for themselves. Here we learn about this religious festival close to Shiloh where the daughters of Shiloh came out to dance in the vineyards. This festival is, is not easily identifiable as one of the great feasts prescribed by the law of Moses, Passover Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Tabernacles, none of those feasts involve girls dancing in a vineyard. More than likely, this is probably a semi-pagan ritual that they're taking part in, a corrupt version of the Feast of Tabernacles associated with the grape harvest. Now, why would God's people be participating in a celebration like this? I don't know. Could it be that in that day there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes? Possibly, I'd go with that. So during this semi-pagan dance routine in a vineyard, Judges, it's, it's a messed up story, isn't it? The leaders of Israel called for the people of Benjamin to lie in ambush in the vineyards, and when the women came out, they snatched them up to take them as wives. The solution, again, is kidnapping, human trafficking, forced marriage, or what is known as slave marriage. This is the plan, and this is what happens. Look at verse 23. And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Notice what else they do. The leaders of Israel try and justify their actions. Of course they do with the leaders in Shiloh. 
When they come and they're like, why did you take our women away? They already have an answer for them. Verse 22, and when their fathers and their brothers come to complain to us, we'll say to them, grant them graciously to us because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle, neither did you give them, else you would now be guilty. So they they justify their, their wicked actions by the outcome. You're not to blame. We're not to blame. We're all off the hook. They took them. They kidnapped them themselves. So we're we're clear of any curse here. Bad leaders always argue that the ends justify the means. We have many today who do just that. Many today trying to undo the consequences of bad decisions in horrific ways. And when they're questioned about it, they argue that the outcome justifies the evils done to accomplish those ends we can be just like the wicked in israel what's their problem judges 21 25 in those days there was no king in israel everyone did what was right in his own eyes well we're almost finished with the book of judges only a few lines left Is this how it's going to end? In complete moral ruin and spiritual darkness? What's the title of our study up here? Faithful God in a fallen world. We get a glimpse. I want you to see this here before we end. We get a glimpse of God's faithfulness here in verses 23 and 24. Look at it with me. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns, and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. There's an important word here that's used twice. It's the word inheritance. While God's people have been declining spiritually throughout this book, and it seems as if they will completely collapse by the end, notice we have the words here, return, rebuild, and inheritance. Return, rebuild, and inheritance. We're told by the end of Joshua, Joshua 21, 45, this is your verse for the week, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. We see fulfillment of that here as well. Faithful God in a fallen world. While it's not what Israel deserves, while their actions have been wrong from the jump, while they have not made matters better by their actions, but must much, much worse by the poor decisions that they have made, God remains faithful. We, we said last week that he saves and he grows Benjamin. While, while the, his people are in the wrong, for completely decimating this society and for the wicked ways in which they try to preserve this tribe of people, God will continue to grow the Benjaminites strong again and he graciously blesses them. The first king of Israel comes from the tribe of Benjamin, King Saul, and later one of God's greatest apostles, the Apostle Paul, tribe of Benjamin, grace of God. Faithful God in a fallen world. God keeps his word. He remains faithful to his people. Look at this next quote. Mary Webb says this. 
Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass, Joshua 21, 45. The book of Joshua ended after Joshua had dismissed the people with every man going to his inheritance, Joshua 24, 28. The fact that after all that has happened, the book of Judges ends in the same way is nothing short of miraculous. What it tells us is that God has not abandoned his wayward people, amen? And therefore, there is hope. The promise of an inheritance still stands. In the very next book, the book of Ruth, we're told that that takes place during the period of the judges. In this story, we learn of how God providentially provides for a Moabite widow named Ruth. He gives her a new husband in Bethlehem, and he blesses her with a child named Obed, who will be the grandfather of a king named David. Hallelujah! We, we learn later in the book of 1 Samuel that God will use a judge named Samuel to find David and anoint him king. And we learn through this king, through David, will come a true and better king who will provide a true and better deliverance for God's people through King Jesus. Praise God. While the period of the judges was a, a time when there was no king in Israel, there came a day when a king would come to Israel and he would accomplish for God's people salvation through his life and death and resurrection. And the question I want to leave you with today is this. Have you bowed the knee to this king? Have you bowed the knee to King Jesus today? Have you turned from going your way? And have you surrendered your life to the way, the truth, and the life, King Jesus? If not, I pray that you would today. That's your invitation. Turn from going your own way, doing what's right in your own eyes, and follow the way, the truth, the life, King Jesus. Give your life up and over to him Turn from your sin, bow the knee to Christ today, and be saved. Let's pray together.